Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and we're in for a treat today. After some persuasion, the lesser-spotted Bearbull has agreed that if ever there was a time IC listeners needed to hear his views, it might be now. Bearbull is to the IC what the Stig is to Top Gear, so I shan't go into more detail, except that he has been penning the pages of Investors Chronicle since, I think, the 1950s, and I, for one, am excited to hear what he has to say. Bearbull, welcome to the show. I was hoping you might have been a columnist for as long as the magazine itself has been in publication, 162 years, but digging through the archive, it looks like that's not the case. Anyway, how are you? Well, I'm not quite feeling like 162 years old, but, you know, I'm sort of, uh, I'm old enough. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well, I'm surviving. Thank you for inviting me. That was very kind and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you. So to start, I wondered where you currently sit on the bull bear spectrum for global equities, where zero is the most bearish bear bull has ever been and 100 is the most bullish. By instinct, by intuition, I tend towards caution. I tend towards caution, but I also, I think, tend towards scepticism. So, you know, if people say X, I will be inclined to say, well, how about Y? The inclination, I guess, at the moment is to be bearish. That's what commentators generally are, both about markets and about the economy. My sort of intuitive reaction to that is, well, hang on, if everybody's so bearish, why isn't the market weaker? The market has actually been really pretty resilient. You know, it had a bad time in what, in February when the Ukrainian situation first arose. But since then, it's recovered most of those losses. So I kind of think, well, isn't that resilience telling us something? Are things really quite as bad as they seem? Take away the Ukrainian situation, which you can't, but imagine you could take away the Ukrainian situation, and we'd all probably be reasonably optimistic about the future. So therefore, you know, we are then saying to ourselves, okay, well, you can't take away the Ukrainian situation. So what sort of importance do you give that? Because on the one hand, you have a reasonably optimistic scenario, on the other hand, you have this, this outlier of the, of the Ukrainian situation, which at its worst could really be awful. Where does that leave you? It leaves me kind of somewhere in the middle, unusually maybe slightly more optimistic relative to the crowd than I perhaps would be normally. So on a scale of 0 to 100, I'm sort of, you know, I'm kind of 50 plus, I'm 55, 60-ish, I guess. I guess to an extent, it depends what market you look at. Um, but we'll get back to investment questions later. Mm -hmm. On the economy, we're in a pretty uncomfortable position at the moment with inflation in the UK at 9% and the Bank of England base rate at 1% and combined national and corporate debt as high as it's ever been. The OECD has come out with a pretty depressing report this morning forecasting that inflation will average 7.4% next year with no economic growth, um, only Russia to form worse among the G20 countries. However, <laughs> we all know to be wary of predictions, especially those ones which use decimal points. But there are various ways this could play out. The best case scenario being a soft landing where a recession is avoided, inflation pulls back. The worst probably being deep stagflation. What's your take on how things might play out? One way you can look at it is that, uh, is this the period, is this the fairly long period perhaps when we get the great rollback in interest rates? Uh, the cost of money has been ridiculously low for a ridiculously long period of time. We knew that at some stage that had to change. We, you know, we intuitively knew that. We had no idea what would make it change. Uh, maybe we are now seeing that the start of that process. Um, and you know, it's a combination of uh, inflation, unforeseen circumstances, um, the reaction of central banks to inflation, 
the risk aversion of populations in the in the Western world in general. All these all these things are tending towards towards uh, inflation and the concomitant of that high interest rates. So maybe we'll see that we might see this as a sort of a long term play, which is good and bad. I mean, it's good for savers in the sense that higher interest rates are more likely to mean that savings accounts, you know, generate half decent rates of interest. On the other hand, it's maybe not so good for equities because it will tend to mean that if you're using higher interest rates, you're using higher discount rates. So, you know, when you pull back future uh, future cash flows to present value, you're going to get lower values. Mm, and corporate debt um, is quite high. So and corporate means. debt, yes, yes. But But again, look, you know, Inflation has some uses. It gets a bad press. Um, if you've got too much debt, how do you get rid of it? Oh, well, actually, one very good way of get rid of it is uh, getting rid of it is to is to inflate it away. Not much fun for the lender. We know that, but you know, kind of useful for borrowers. Yeah, it's sort of the 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 least difficult of all the ways to try and get rid of the debt. It's the least difficult. It's the way. It's the way that the fewest people notice it. Sometimes it has to be done. In terms of inflation, to what extent do you think it is now entrenched? You wrote a piece on this recently saying um, inflation begets inflation. And I think that's because of wages. What, what, is, what are wages telling us currently about the outlook for inflation? Because I wonder um, if there's a case to say that the rise in energy and food prices has been down to supply shortages, which maybe if, you know, if the war ends and COVID clears up, that could, that could ease naturally. Yeah, actually, I revisited inflation again this week in the Bearable, which will be you know published online in the next day or so, and in the magazine on Friday. Uh, I did that because I got um, quite a lot of feedback from just that little one-page article on, on, on inflation last week. It might be slightly deflecting your question a bit now, because I asked myself, okay, well, to what extent does inflation matter to, to, to investors, to equity investors? And I kind of slightly surprised myself with the result, which is that, um, to put it simply, over the long term, inflation doesn't really do much at all to investing returns, next to nothing. The reason, I think, basically being that um, equities beat inflation enough years to offset any bad effects when inflation, as it were, beats, uh, beats equity returns. Do you think it might make people think that their returns are better than they are, though? Are investors good at factoring in inflation? When you know, if inflation's seven percent and your equities go up by seven percent, that's not your real returns, not seven percent. Well, absolutely, it's not absolutely. Well, then you're asking the question: Okay, to what extent do investors, like other people, suffer this thing, money illusion? And you know, the answer to that is we don't know. I mean, money illusion sometimes it seems to exist, sometimes it doesn't seem to exist. Economists have been arguing about this, I think, for, well, probably as long as there have been monetary economists. You can look at it from the, from the point of view of behavioural psychology, and you'll see that in experiments, people will sometimes suffer money illusion, sometimes they won't suffer money illusion. Obviously, you are absolutely right. If I invest £100 in, in something, and at the end of the year, it gets a 10% return, and I'm now looking at £110, but if, if inflation in that year is 12%, then, oh, I'm not just looking at 100, 110 pounds, actually, I'm looking at less than my starting value. So, you know, I've lost money. There's been other, you know, there's been other research which indicates that if inflation crosses a certain threshold, then people shed their money illusion and they become more aware of it 
wrote about this a few months ago, where there was some study in the United States, which indicated that when uh, inflation, particularly food, we're now talking, as it were, on the consumer spectrum of things, uh, particularly where food and energy were concerned, when inflation crossed a 5% threshold, then um, wage bargainers became much more aware of it than when it was, when, than when it was below that level. But, you know, you never really quite know to what extent when, when people do that. You never know to what extent they're kind of simply looking at today's inflation rate and to what extent they're projecting forward and saying, OK, what will the inflation rate be in, be in, in 12 months' time? So you never quite know. But we're definitely above that 5% now. I wondered, so the US and the UK are in similar positions of high inflation, high debt, low rates, but how might your expectation for the two compare? Well, it is it, it is interesting that um, I think I did a chart of this. Uh, it was only last week, wasn't it? About about inflation, which showed that the latest rate of inflation in the USA had had turned down. At that stage, uh, commentators were asking themselves, "Well, you know, is this the is this the start of the uh, the slowdown in in um, in inflation?" Um, on the basis that the USA typically for the United States, led the world in inflation uh, earlier this year. And that was maybe because it had the most generous um, COVID rescue plan back in sort of 2020 or thereabouts. So in, in other words, it injected more money in, into the economy than, in, in, than anybody else in, in per capita terms. So if, there were, if the USA led the world in inflation on its upward curve, would it then lead the uh, lead the world down um, on its downward curve? And was the the dip in CPI in the United States last month a sign of things to come? I think the consensus is that well, no, it's not quite the sign of things to come. That inflation in the USA will turn up a bit more yet, and then maybe head down. And I guess the assumption is therefore that um, the UK will follow suit eventually, but we're not quite sure when. Um, and then Europe will follow will follow on again, but again, we're really not too sure when. And we have lots of unknowns, don't we? You mentioned um, the war in Ukraine as being a bit of a game changer in terms of the economy earlier. I wondered, of all the headwinds, so fractious geopolitics, inflation, climate change, tighter monetary policy and recession risk, the rise of a new world power in China, what do you think is the most concerning for stock market investors? Most of those factors can all be lumped into one big factor, which is fractious geopolitics. Most of it comes under that heading, doesn't it? Or we could say that it's climate change or fractious geopolitics. I mean, clearly, the you know the rise of the new of, 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 of the rise of China that's really about uh, geopolitics. Recession that's about geopolitics. Ukraine that's obviously about geopolitics. The size of debt is that's not geopolitics, really, is it? No, the size of debt probably isn't geopolitics. Well, it it is and it isn't. I mean, in a way, does debt matter? Because if you just look at the thing from the global perspective, in a way, it doesn't matter. Because one thing about debt is that it it will always net out to zero. The amount of debt must equal the amount of lending. I mean, that's you know, it it, it can't be anything else. So the problem isn't really debt per se; it's the distribution of debt. And there we do come to a geopolitical thing because the distribution of debt on a global basis arguably is wrong, or it could be wrong, in the sense that, to put it simply, 
oil producing countries and China, they have all the lending power and uh, the developed world has all the, has all the borrowing power. Therefore, it does borrow. So is that a problem? Well, it's a problem, you know, if, if one country, if one company gets loaded up with too much debt, then that can be a problem. But equally, it may be simply a sign of its ability to, to handle that debt. Both are true. Debt is a concern in the sense that I'm now talking from the perspective of the developed world. Debt, I think, is a concern in the sense that it's one of the ways in which we preserve the illusion of our growth and our prosperity. If we can't generate growth and prosperity through our own efforts, then how do we do it? Oh, well, we go and borrow a lot of money and we spend that and we pretend we're wealthy. And, you know, if you do that too often, therein you have a problem. And you can start asking yourselves, to what extent is that problem becoming real and becoming big in the developing world? And if I look at it from that perspective, as I do from time to time, then I kind of think, well, yes, maybe we do have a problem. Ally that with lousy demographics and you will, have, you will start to have a problem. And inflation. Well, and inflate. Well, yeah, we, we still come back to the point about, in that context, the usefulness of inflation in the long run. You know, and its its ability to uh, to 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 reduce the um, the absolute amount of debt. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I I was thinking in the context of borrowing rates having to go up to take the heat. Oh yeah, out. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, yeah, sure. Anyway, let's move on to some questions more specifically about investing. So, time and again, commentators in our portfolio clinics say that investors have too much of a home bias, so too much invested in UK equities. But this has been a year, the first in a long time, where UK stocks have perform better than most other countries. What's your view on the relative attractiveness of UK stocks and how much of an equity portfolio they should make up? Well, you're absolutely right when you point out um, that um, investors tend to have too much of a home bias. The The counterpoint to that is probably to say worse the effect like, well, what do you expect? In a way, you can only invest in what you know. And almost by definition, you're going to know more about your home market than um, than other markets. So that's one point. Another point is that I'm a great believer in the notion of mean reversion. So, you know, when something outperforms, there'll be a period when it comes back to average and underperforms and vice versa. And the UK equities has have clearly had a period of um, severe underperformance. And, you know, you can trace much of that back to the, um, to, to the self-inflicting wound of um, the, the decision to leave the European Union. Okay, well, that's well, in a way, that's gone. The underperformance has been real. Like so many things, uh, like like so many trends, it goes further than it needs to go. And, and now maybe it, you know, now be, maybe it is sort of reversing itself. That's what I would kind of think. So I would think that mean reversion is happening here, and that will continue to be um, a reasonably, you know, a rather useful thing for UK equities. You wrote an interesting article about emerging markets recently, or specifically the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and came to the conclusion that together they are generally a disaster while each has its moment in the sun. Would you hold emerging market exposure in your personal portfolio? And if so, how would you do it? Okay, so BRICS were were a very convenient invention, um, almost a marketing device. And they were what conjured up by um, by the Goldman Sachs economist um, whose name I can't remember thirty years ago, and at the time, you know, you could kind of see the point of why bricks might be created because they were, you know, you have 
four big countries what do they have in common well they're all enormous they all have big populations and they all have relatively poor economies um and hey presto for a while they all seem to be doing well simultaneously so you could kind of see how they would be lumped together and for a while that did tend to work but then when you start to look at them in any sort of detail it doesn't take a genius to see that there are really some quite fundamental differences between the economies of India and China and Russia and, and Brazil. And if you want to lump South Africa in with that, then fine, and four become five. And possibly, well, arguably, if you lump South Africa in with the rest, then you know you lump the state of those five, which is most likely to become a failing state. I mean, you know, the state, the state of South Africa, you, in a way, you don't even want to think about it. It's so bad. Um, so maybe we shouldn't think about it. Okay, so BRICS were an invention. Emerging markets, they were kind of an invention as well. On a long-term view, they have still done very well. Would I wanted to hold them in a portfolio for the past 30 years? Well, absolutely, because on a 30-year view, probably on a 20-year view, they still would have performed uh, much better than developing markets. If I look at it from a 10-year and a 5-year perspective, then it's then it's then it's much worse. If I then bring back my favoured topic of mean reversion into the equation, I might start to saying, well, hey, hang on, at some stage that before poor performance will reverse because by and large, emerging market economies are still growing faster than developing world economies. The gap in relative performance is probably narrower, but nevertheless, you look at the likes of I don't know Vietnam and Cambodia. You will see you will still see economies growing faster. Um, so all that is encouraging. Then, if I want to swing back with another cautious point, I might say to you, well, yes, but in the past twenty years or so, the whole notion that countries can develop simply by being young and having a big pool of labour, that whole notion has been rather put down, people are much more sceptical about it nowadays, because the idea is that that's no longer a route out of poverty. It's no longer a route out of poverty, because increasingly, capital equipment can take the place of bog-standard unskilled labour. So where does that leave the likes of Cambodia? Maybe it, you know, it means they're going to struggle much more than they, they would do, let alone sub-Saharan Africa, uh, which is a whole, you know, that's a whole different ball game. And it's very difficult to be optimistic about sub-Saharan Africa at all. Where does that leave me? In a diversified portfolio, then I probably want to diversify globally, and I do want emerging markets in there. So, yeah, I would, I would, I would do it. Obviously, I'm not going to do it in the bearable income fund, but if there were still a bearable growth fund, then I would probably do it. And I would, in practical terms, I would almost certainly do it via a fund. Whether I simply say to myself, okay, let's go for a, an exchange traded fund, and forget about any local market expertise, or whether I do it via an investment trust. Um, off the top of my head, I'd say, I, I don't know. I'd have to look at that further. Now, moving to developed markets, there's been a big sell-off in growth stocks this year. The Nasdaq has fallen by over a quarter. How much more road do you think there is in the rotation? You, you said you're a believer in mean reversion. Do, do you think, where do you think the best long-term opportunities are in Developed market equities at the moment. Well, I mean, Mary, that's a that's a big, profound question, um, and you know that uh, you you've now gathered that, of course, in answer to any question about where I hesitate, then I just say mean reversion, uh, because I mean, look, it, it is a powerful force. So, I mean, hindsight is wonderful. Uh, let's kind of just 
briefly relate this to Tesla. On the one hand, you could see that Tesla was a bubble. This is not to say Tesla's not a great company. It probably is a great company. But equally, you could see it was a bubble. And like all bubbles, at some stage, it would burst. What, you know, you know, what we never knew is when it would burst. But now it's, now it's pretty well burst. So the question is, how much more deflating does it have to do? And the honest answer to that is, look, I don't know. I don't look at Tesla in enough detail to have a view on that. But I do know that markets will tend to overreact, both on the way up and on, on the way down. My intuition would be, given that some of those glamour stocks were so incredibly highly rated, that they've still got quite a lot more deflating to do. But more than that, without going and looking at them in some detail, and to be honest, I haven't done that. Having not done that, you know, I just have to go back to my intuition and say, well, look, I expect markets to overreact and they've still got some more overreacting to do on the downside. Now, you mentioned the bearable income portfolio earlier. How is it, how is it faring at the moment? Not well is the simple answer. If you're an investor, you have to be honest with yourself. There's, there's no point in kidding yourself. And if you look at the income portfolio, which I have to say has been around for quite a long time now, and like it's 24 years, believe it or not, that I've been doing this, uh, I find it hard to believe that it is true. It's been around for 24 years. And if you look at its 24-year record, then you think, yeah, that's really good. I mean, it is, it has skinned the all share. It's skinned the all share, whichever way you want to look at it. And it's skinned the all share while simultaneously providing a superior dividend yield to the all share index and um, and a, a dividend payout that, whilst it's been quite volatile and its growth on average has been faster than the uh, than the growth in in dividends from the from the all share. So all that is great. On the other hand, if you're looking at its past five years, then they've really been quite poor. Um, and so the question is, well, why have they been quite so poor? I can't lie to you when I say I'm not really sure. I can kind of job back and figure out why has it been so poor. One quite important reason is because value stocks have been out of favour for all that period of time. And if you compare the bearable, uh, the bearable portfolio with um, a typical UK value stock index, then it's kind of it's about level pegging. So, you know, I might excuse myself and say, well, OK, that's all right. And it doesn't matter too much. But on the other hand, in the, in the 24 years that I've been doing the thing, I've been there before when value stocks have been, uh, have been out of favour. And um, the Bearable Fund did quite well in those, in those periods. It didn't seem to affect it. So what's so different this time? One factor that might be different this time is simply luck. We don't like the idea of luck being a major factor in shaping, in shaping our lives, in shaping our investment returns and so on and so forth. But it is a big factor. Um, it's far bigger than we, we, we care to admit, although I'm kind of aware of it, so therefore I tend to admit it. And when Bearble, in its first 15, 20 years of, of existence, when the Bearble portfolio was regularly skinning markets, then I often said to myself, and even said in writing quite often, you know, look, don't underestimate the power of luck in all this, because I don't know what I'm doing that's so clever. I mean, I'm really, I don't. I'm just trying to pick good companies. So, you know, maybe luck is a good factor here. But even though I do try and look hard at the stocks I buy and why I buy them and why they're not doing as well as they, they should be doing. And if I said that I had a 
clear, simple answer, then I'd be I'd be fibbing to you. I could ramble on a bit more about this because there are other, other important points, but I, I think maybe you might want to sort of shut me up on this juncture and come in with a supplementary, maybe. What What is the current dividend yield on the fund and how many holdings it's does it have in it at the moment, just to give a bit of context? Okay, so the income return was 4.8% last year. When I last checked, which, surprise, surprise, was this morning, knowing that I was coming on air, the real-time running yield based on latest prices is that it's, it, it looks as if it will return about, assuming prices stay where they are, which, of course, they won't. Uh, but at the moment, the, uh, the yield is about 4.6%, which, in a way, is more than enough because the yield on the all share, I think, is about 3.3%. Mm-hmm. What I've always said, I mean, for no particular reason other than wanting to have a superior yield, uh, I've said to myself, okay, think in terms of the all share, think in terms of the, uh, the income portfolio having a yield of about 1.3 times the market average. So if the market average is 3.3%, at the moment, it should be yielding. You know, it should be yielding about what sort of 4.4, 4. 4.5%. That would be that would be appropriate. So it's crossing that threshold reasonably comfortably with a bit to spare, and that's fine. But should I should I go on with a butt point? Yeah, go on with a butt point, please. Well, you know, you have to accept the basic the basic premise of an of, of an income portfolio that if you're getting a superior yield, you're getting it for something. You're getting it because by and large, the market is. The market is doubtful of these companies. The market questions their growth. The market questions their the ability of these companies to keep on producing fat dividends, and therefore it prices them accordingly, and therefore the yield goes up. In other words, paradoxically, they become more risky than you think they really are. And you can't get away from that. If you want a high-yield portfolio, at some stage, maybe you're going to, you know, you will pay the price for that, which is part, maybe part of the reason why, um, why the income portfolio is performing quite badly, has been quite badly performing in the past three to five years. So do you think you should shift it into a one that focuses on total return with a yield? I do. I, I wrote a piece about this last week on what a, um, a realistic or sensible yield for an income investor to target in the current climate is. Because if you're, as you say, if you're looking for this 4.5% yield, that, that comes at quite a, a sacrifice for the total returns. Always, my hope was that it wouldn't come with a sacrifice. And um, as I say, over the full, you know, over the full twenty-four years, it 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 hasn't come with a sacrifice. But if you send to, if you then start to break down the, the performance into into time portions, then in the past five years, it clearly has come with a sacrifice. So, I don't know. I mean, in a sense, the the income portfolio. Let's acknowledge that it's it's not real money, and it's slightly contrived. It's not contrived in any way in its valuation. Its valuation is 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 fully authenticated and blah de blah. But if I was starting an income portfolio again, would I do it this way? I'm not sure because in the real world, presumably, if you're building up a portfolio for income, to begin with, you don't start distributing all the income you get. You reinvest it. Now, for better or worse, the Bearball Income Fund has always re- has always distributed all the income it got. So whilst it was growing very fast in its in its early years, it didn't reinvest that income, which is a great pity because it would have been very useful given where we are now. And in the real world, this is what you know you tend to do. You tend to save for X number of years and then you get your nice little capital pot and then you start to you start to draw from that capital pot. So 
I guess in relation to, to your question, it, the answer will be, well, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily do it like this. I wouldn't necessarily focus on income. It depends what I want. But if I don't want my income straight away, then I'm not really going to focus on yield. I'm going to focus on what I think are the best quality stocks. And as the late lamented Chris Dillo always said, dividends don't really matter. A, you know, they don't matter a fig. If you want dividends uh, and in, 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 in a portfolio which doesn't pay any dividends whatsoever, it doesn't matter. You just strip off a few shares and sell them. I mean, it, it, it's, dividends, in a way, they're a contrivance. They're a useful contrivance. Dividends do have various functions, and you know, we can go into that if you want. At one level, they are a contrivance. So have I have I answered your question or have I just rambled in my usual way? <laughs> no, you have. Well, we have we haven't had a specific target, but that's fine. Nobody, there is no there is no one single truth. I don't think. In February, you wrote an article, "Lessons from the Future." You were talking about the bursting of the dot com bubble and saying that the FTSE All Share Index fell forty two percent between two thousand and two thousand and two, but your income portfolio rose sixteen percent in that period. And then you said it would be ridiculously optimistic to expect the bearable portfolio to prosper in a forthcoming sell-off. I wondered why. Yeah, that's a very good question because I can't quite remember writing that, but I'm sure I did. It may have been that I was in a periodical um, phase of um, pessimistic introspection when I looked at the portfolio's performance. It may, I guess it was really just realistic. The extent to which portfolios can outperform the factor against which they always have to drag against, which basically, you know, is the market, uh, the extent to which any portfolio, any, any, any equity portfolio can outperform its market is always going to be limited. And I guess the, um, the comparative period I took in 2000 was, was an especially, especially wonderful one. And things come along. I mean, for example, this year, the income portfolio was doing I caricature, I caricature slightly now. It was doing wonderfully well for the per, for the first four months, and then because of one stock specific um, accident, if you like, in the fifth month in May, then it lost all that gain, and um, it's now underperforming the market so far this year. And that was just because of one arguably unforeseen stock specific thing. That wasn't to do with some. Um, what stock was it? That was uh, that was. Uh, a sort of insurance company called Randall and Quilter, which um, rejected a takeover bid from uh, private equity in the United States. Look, let me confess my my sin here. I did recommend that uh, the offer should be rejected, and I recommended it. I recommended rejection in full knowledge that this company would need more equity if the offer were rejected. The offer was rejected which surprised me a bit, but nevertheless, it was rejected. And now Randall and Quilter have to go out and get more equity. And they're always needing more equity. And sooner or later, the market is going to punish them from that for that. And, and um, a combination of the rejection of the takeover bid and the need for more equity to, be ra- equity to be raised meant the share price suffered very badly. It lost about 25%. And that was sufficient to, uh, you know, to give the portfolio a bit of a knock. These things happen. What's been your latest addition to the portfolio? The latest addition is a company called um, Greencoat UK Wind, which um, is a um, uh, what the company does is rather in the uh, in in the, in the title. Uh, it um, it runs it owns wind farms. 
Yeah, they're quite interesting. We've written about them quite a lot in the magazine. They've got very attractive yields, but I find their um, their NAV calculations seem to be quite subjective. They're definitely interesting to look at. Sorry, I'm afraid we're actually quite close to time, so I'm only I've only got time for one more question. You've written some really interesting columns on ESG over the time that I've been here, certainly, and it, and it feels like a topic that's very popular among the financial press at the moment as the backlash against its rising, perhaps the lumping together of the three, environment, social and governance, has been unhelpful and politicised it a bit. However, to what extent do you think investors focused on returns need to take ESG measures seriously? It's kind of weird. It seems to me there is a disconnect between the marketing of ESG and the reality of ESG. I mean, I guess your work email must be like mine in the sense that every day I get press releases telling me that um, ESG stocks outperform non-ESG stocks, that investors want to invest in sustainable stocks and investors want to invest in um, uh, renewables and so on and so forth. And this is kind of a disconnect that if ESG and if the E part of ESG, in other words, basically the pursuit of net zero, if all that is so successful, if it all leads to lower costs of capital and higher share returns, then why can't I find that when I research companies? And by and large, I struggle to find it. There's a bit of a disconnect there. I don't, I don't fully understand it. Bearbull, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real treat. So I will release you back into the woods. Um, really appreciate your time. <laughs> okay, you're welcome. Thank you very much.